Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So is this the introduction? It might be. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, but I have two co-hosts today. Wow, co-hosts, uh, guests perhaps? Guests. We'll go with co-hosts. We'll take responsibility for You've this. You've actually heard their voices before it's when tr- they did a podcast on Richard III recently. Now is the... Actually, Xander did that one. Oh, yeah. Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York. Oh, yeah. What, what a, a guy. What a cool guy, buddy. <laughs> so anyway, that's Xander, and I'm Eric, and we're the guys from Reconsider, where we do politics, but not the thinking for you. And so today what we're going to talk about is reconsidering some of the basic, what do you think, like narratives narratives of Tudor England. And um, we're going to talk about some women in particular Mm. and some stories that people get very excited about and very emotional about and how we can go back and examine where we get our own thoughts from and examine how we feel about the things we read and how to reconsider things. And if you happen to like this episode, Heather is going to join us on Reconsider, and we're going to basically do the exact opposite, use Tudor England history to reconsider modern-day events. So, stay tuned. Plugs for that, so head on over to to their site, and I'll post links. Reconsideredmedia.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes at Reconsider. We're Agora Buddies. You can find us that way, too. We're Agora Buddies. We're great Agora Buddies. (laughs) So, how should we get this started, you guys? So maybe we could start with a couple of the Reconsider principles as a framework. Mm. And then since Heather knows obviously way more about the history than we do, we could talk about some of these narratives. And then Xander and I can talk about how some of the principles apply to understanding and disentangling some of those narratives. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Sort of the whole purpose of the Reconsider podcast and blog is, as the name implies, reconsidering existing political narratives, opinions uh, that you might have. Or that other people might have. So that is perhaps easier said than done. And I think no, it's no perhaps about it, buddy. Yeah, sure thing, guy. Uh, we we quote South Park they, more than is healthy. They really yeah. like South Park quotes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, re- reconsidering is a concept that I think everyone wants to think that they believe in, but when it actually comes time to do it, is very challenging. I struggle with it, uh, just as Eric does, just as I think everyone does. So. We put together a couple of reconsider principles to actually help you implement the practice of reconsidering. Mm. So these are skepticism and detachment, and there are both internal and external varieties of skepticism and detachment. We should make a two-by-two matrix of them. Mm. Yeah, put that online. A grid of some sort. Eric was a consultant. I was a consultant. We love two-by-two matrices. Matrixes? Matrixi? Matrixi? Matrices? Anyway, so... Uh, Let's talk about skepticism first. So skepticism is the idea that when you look at something, uh, either internally or externally, we'll start with externally because it's simpler. Mm -hmm. When you read something and it says such and such a thing is true. Mm -hmm. Skepticism is the idea 
of saying in your head, hmm, I wonder if that's true. Mm-hmm. And how would I know it's true? How would I confirm that it's true? Mm-hmm. As opposed to either accepting something gleefully because it matches the narrative you like or rejecting something outright because it's against the narrative you like. So skepticism isn't just about rejection. Mm-hmm. It's about saying, I wonder how I would know that this is true. Mm-hmm. H- much harder is internal skepticism, which is when you have an idea about what's true, in particular a narrative, you know, such and such policy is good for such and such people or something like that. It's very, it's particularly hard to recognize that that is a narrative as opposed to an immutable part of, you know, life or an immutable fact um, and be equally skeptical about that. So challenging yourself and saying, how do I know that's true? So like if I were going to say something, I'm trying to think about specific facts that there are questions about, like the princess in the tower. Did Richard III murder the princess in the tower? Or was it Margaret Beaufort or was it somebody else? So when I read Richard III murdered the princess in the tower, perhaps I can be a little bit, well, how would I know that that was true? Right. And if you're not being skeptical... You'll eat, you're more likely to either say, oh, yeah, he totally did it. What a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Or like, no, he wouldn't do it. That sounds, that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as you take a side on that before mm-hmm. you've gone to gather facts, mm-hmm. you've failed to be skeptical. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that's more, well, that's an example of both of kind of external, internal, somewhat. Mm-hmm. Certainly questioning narratives that you read in history as you investigate them as a form of external skepticism. I think internal skepticism would be if you consume a new narrative and your emotional reaction is almost immediate, you become defensive, and it's something that I think if you start paying attention and looking for it, you actually start noticing a lot more frequently. Mm. That's, that's often a clue that you're not digesting information in an unbiased way. And that, that doesn't mean that you are wrong. It means that it might be a clue to start reconsidering one of your positions. There might be some cognitive biases at work. You might be anchored towards one sort of idea that influences a larger narrative that you believe in. So that would be an example of encountering or something that could encourage you to use internal skepticism. So... The other two ideas are detachment, external detachment, internal detachment. I think internal detachment is much easier. Mm. That is, I'm a person, I think I'm a good person, I have ideas, but I'm willing to change my ideas. My ideas define who I am to a degree, but not really. I can, I can see myself outside of certain narratives that I hold, right? Mm-hmm. That's much harder to do for other people, I think, because if you run into someone at a cocktail party, have a conversation with them, the stories that you hear from them in that 30 minutes largely defines your perspective of them. So it's very hard to detach who an individual is from the ideas that they're presenting. But if you can do this, that lets you, one, approach the ideas as ideas Mm -hmm. and not approach the ideas as potential animosity Mm -hmm. towards an individual. And it lets you maintain the conversation with that individual because you say, okay, this person is probably a good person. I really disagree about this Mm -hmm. one thing that they are carrying in Mm -hmm. their minds. And maybe there are other things we can agree on. Maybe we can find some common ground. Mm. Yeah, and attaching someone's identity to their ideas, since we'll never have a true view of their identity, makes us more likely to treat them as a stereotype. So, for example, <clears throat> if you hear someone believes in, like, very free market policies, you might be like, oh, I bet they're, they're really rich and they're selfish and they just want, mm-hmm. you know, they don't want to pay their workers more or something right. like that. And then what you do, since you've painted that stereotype, you say, and therefore, of course, they're wrong. Right. And so you're not able to engage the idea for the idea. Or in the opposite direction, someone may be for 
you know, uh, new labor laws or regulation or expanded mm-hmm. welfare. And maybe that's them saying like, well, they, they're selfish and they don't want to work hard and they mm-hmm. want the, you know, the government to pay for them and mm-hmm. they're lazy and therefore they're obviously wrong and you're not able to look at those policies for those policies. What about, I mean, this is very valuable, and especially at the time that we're in right now, recording just before the Electoral College is going to vote for whoever they're going to vote for. Which, by the way, one of the weird things is, I never thought in my life that I would say that. That, like, oh, yeah, it's right before the Electoral College meets and decides who's going to be president. (laughs) What? (laughs) Anyway, that's for another time. But, um, but, like, I, there's so much emotional at state, I feel like both sides in the U.S. election, and even with Brexit, like there's this idea, and this gets way past Tudor history. But I feel like part of it is because of the animosities between religious groups that we saw in Tudor England, mm. um, with you know Catholics and Protestants and extreme versions of Protestants and all of that. It's like your belief in the fact that the fact that you were okay with voting for Trump, the fact that you are a Protestant, the fact that you believe in the transubstantiation or not says X, Y, Z, I can extrapolate this stuff about you. And therefore it's like this whole judgment or the fact that you voted for Hillary or the fact, whoever you voted for, like it must mean this. So how do you detach from that? I think it's, it's, and how do you detach from that? Like with history, like if you're reading Henry VIII killed his wives, or if you're reading, you know, Mary killed hundreds of Protestants in the Book of Martyrs, and that's where propaganda and stuff comes in too, right? right. So Fox's Book of Martyrs, which was the book that made her famous as Bloody Mary. Right. Um, so like, how, tell, talk to me about how you detach from that. Yeah, practically, if I'm looking at my own interpretation of contemporary events, I... I'm coming from a place where I want to understand as much as possible. I want to have as accurate an understanding of reality as possible. And I I recognize that all humans, including myself, are born and carry with them cognitive biases. Mm -hmm. And I know that one of the things that can help you overcome cognitive biases, and there's been a lot of work on this done. You can read Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, good book. One one of the ways to overcome cognitive biases is recognize that you have them Mm -hmm. and check for them on a constant basis, right? Mm -hmm. So... If I feel very emotional about something, just asking, okay, is this is this a reasonable emotional reaction? Mm-hmm. You know, on average, that will contribute to your having a better interpretation of reality than mm-hmm. if you didn't do that, right? Now, in so terms, this is a good oh, pro tip for how to get through Christmas dinner. It's yes, totally true. Yeah. <laughs> crazy Uncle Joe, right? Right. <laughs> Which, by the way, Joe thinks you're crazy. Of course, he does. nephew, you know, Bobby. Yeah. Right. Of course. Now, as it relates to historical figures, I think if we're going to use the term external detachment for this one, Mm -hmm. it serves a different purpose than if you're talking to someone, because part of the reason you want to detach a person from their ideas is so you can maintain the conversation. Mm -hmm. You're not going to have a conversation with Henry VIII. He's long gone, right? Right. But I think looking at a figure that is as controversial as Henry VIII, who is frequently remembered for his six wives, for this being this, you know, indulgent character who really only cared about eating and and Mm -hmm. womanizing and all that... Uh, the, the way that detachment can be useful for a character like that in history is it gives you a pause to say, okay, well, obviously this king of England was more complex than this one particular narrative can, particular, particular narrative can be used to describe him with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah. that's one example of how I think I it see. can help approach history. I see. And okay. the way I think uh, skepticism can help there is not so much about the facts because... Henry did have 
I mean, it's it's almost certainly true, and, and we don't have any evidence to the contrary, that Henry did kill some of his wives. Mm-hmm. And we, we have plenty of evidence that under Mary, um, Protestants were killed mm-hmm. uh, as, as part of the, you know, suppression or the war. Mm-hmm. Um, but some contextual, what's, what we need to be skeptical about is not whether those facts are true, but what we conclude from them. Mm-hmm. So, for example, like, Bloody Mary is mm-hmm. the thing that we need to be skeptical about, because we kind of go like, well... You know, what was going on mm-hmm. contextually? And, like, obviously from our modern standards, like, the idea of killing people based on the religion is is obscene. But, for example, my understanding is that, like, Elizabeth may have killed, she or under Catholic. Elizabeth, her administration mm-hmm. killed more Catholics than Mary mm-hmm. killed Protestants. Yeah, and when Protestant. you know that, when you know that, how does that change your narrative? Do you go, like, oh, is it Bloody Mary and Bloody Elizabeth? Or do you start going, like, mm-hmm. maybe this is just what was going on at the time? And then also, you, I mean, I guess this would go for current events, too, just looking at the the biases of the person who's writing the account. So, so much of what we know about Mary is written through John Fox and his Book of Martyrs, and he was an exiled Protestant who definitely had a an axe to grind against Mary. And so looking at, like, okay, well, maybe those facts aren't even completely true, and yeah. maybe it was, you know, this guy made some, exaggerated some stuff, or made some stuff sound a lot worse than it was, or something like that. So, is that... <laughs> Because what would you say about that with skeptic? Like, even with facts, maybe aren't necessarily even true. Yeah, I think uh, we, we maybe touched on this a bit when we talked about Richard III. But mm-hmm. obviously, uh, there are there is propaganda in history and who tells stories matters, right? I mean, we mm-hmm. talked about uh, a particular historian named Victor. Mm-hmm. who usually ends up writing the history. Mm-hmm. And that matters because <laughs> people who end up winning want to have a certain interpretation mm-hmm. of their own experience remembered by other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and so that when you when you see that potential bias, it, it causes you to be a little more skeptical. You cannot be like infinitely skeptical of all mm-hmm. things. You cannot do all the research on all the things. Mm-hmm. So you have to sort of like use that resource mm-hmm. selectively um, and seeing something where you go like, hmm, maybe this person had an extra grind. Maybe this person had an agenda mm-hmm. is a, is a useful way of being skeptical, not necessarily outright, um, outright dismissing them. Mm-hmm. Right. But going to gather more information to start to, and that's what, again, skepticism mm-hmm. as opposed to dismissal is about like, I need to know more about this before I draw a conclusion. It's interesting. I could see you going down like a big rabbit hole of like, okay, well, what were John Fox's re- like reasons for this? Okay. Well, what about the people who wrote about John Fox? What were their reasons for writing about it? Well, what were their, you know, and if you, as you go longer through 500 years, suddenly you've got, you know, Victorian historians had a very different view of history than of Tudor England than we do and you know that's where people i mean i guess i wonder there's this whole term revisionist history Mm. like uh, tell me what you guys think about that well first i want to just i i think you make a really interesting point which is you can go down that rabbit hole right Mm -hmm. and if you go down deep enough then you have a phd thesis topic right i mean that is what people like professional academic historians write about Mm -hmm. is one strange source's interpretation of one particular event. And that's mm-hmm. how we further knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, revisionist history, I think, is a bit of a loaded phrase in this work because a lot of the times, I, I don't think it's inherently a bad concept if you're mm-hmm. just talking about reviewing history right. and offering other narratives. But a lot of the times when people say revisionist, they're specifically referring to a body of work that mm-hmm. frequently puts forward a set of ideas that are uh, 
um, kind of recurring and fit within a particular type of narrative. So it's not like reapproaching histo- history from like a completely objective way. Mm-hmm. It usually has like a purpose or an objective built into it. So then should we go through just a couple of these maybe narratives and you guys walk me through revising or not re- the, reconsidering it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. We don't know the history so well. So this right. will actually be great for us as well. And we may ask some like probing questions about like, you know, okay. about some of these folks. Yeah. Okay. So Mary the first as Bloody Mary. Yes. Yes. So help me. So there's the narrative that Mary took over and she married Philip of Spain and she made England all Catholic again and she killed a whole bunch of Protestants and that was all she was kind of good for. Mm. Mm. So the way I might get started is it's a very, the first thing that lights up for my external skepticism is it's a very short narrative. Mm-hmm. So what I don't know is how long was Mary's reign? It was about five years. Five years. Okay. So it's sort of like a presidential term. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's a good analogy. Maybe not. Mm. Um, so she's got about five years and I'm assuming that it's fairly well known fact that some Protestants died uh-huh. and that she married Philip II. Yeah. But during that five years, do we have some evidence of what else may have gone on during her reign? Well, yeah, she, um, she initially started out, she did want to bring England back to the Catholic fold. She did want to do that. And initially she started out by saying that she just wanted to do it through education rather than forcing people. So she spent a lot of money actually on colleges and training priests and training new clergy because all the clergy were now trained in the more Protestant uh, after 20 years of the Reformation, 25 years of the Reformation. So she wanted to train up some priests and train some colleges and, and stuff like that. So that was one of the first things she did. And she also stood very firmly in wanting to marry Philip. Like her... Her counselors didn't want her to marry Philip because they were afraid of this foreign king taking over. And, you know, this, it, she was the first woman queen. She was the first queen that England had had in the post 1066 period. So it was a, a new thing to have a queen and like what would happen when she got married. So there was like a lot of stuff trying to figure out like her role, like would he be the king? And, and she made a, a very, um, stirring speech at the guild hall. This isn't, there was actually a, a a riot, Wyatt's rebellion against her marriage because they were all afraid of Spanish, that there was going to be a Spanish king and, and that her children would be Spanish and suddenly Spain would be ruling England. And there was this rebellion that got all the way across London Bridge and she had to like get her get her forces to go fight them and she gave this mm. stirring speech at the guild hall which everybody said and it was the it was the forerunner to elizabeth's famous speech to the spanish armada you know that mm. you see from the movies where she says I, i'm but a woman but you know i have the the body of a woman but i'm a king and a king of england and and mary basically said the same thing oh. um to her troops and rallied them and the other thing that now i just think about she was she was very good. She People were very loyal to her. In the beginning, she had to fight off Lady Jane Grey, who was a Protestant, who not, she didn't actually want to be the queen. But um, her, Mary's brother, Edward, who was a Protestant, when he died, he nominated or he tried to change the succession so that his cousin, Jane Grey, who was a Protestant, would be the queen so that he basically tried to disinherit his sister. And her, there was a lot of political machinations in there. But Jane was in the tower ready to be crowned and she reigned for nine days and Mm. Mary had to fight. So Mary had to gather troops 
and lead troops into London and the you know the people all fled. So Mary actually effectively put off two rebellions Whoa. in that five years. So that's kind of something else that's interesting about her, that she was even in the midst of this narrative of her killing people and being a Catholic. And even England as a Protestant country was willing to fight for her through that. So I don't know. That's an interesting thing about her. That's fascinating. So, I mean, starting from this narrative of just bloody killing a bunch of people, like we're already adding complexity to it, right? Now, we talk about, or you talked about, how Mary was the first queen of England so the first thing that comes to my mind is she probably encountered quite a bit of resistance because people don't like new things, right? Mm-hmm. So another question that I would ask is what sort of political political constraints and pressures existed at the time? How autocratic was the monarch in England at that mm-hmm. point in terms of handing, having independence of power? And how much were you know all of his, all of her advisors and the aristocracy and the nobility pressuring her towards one action or another? Um, they were pressuring her mostly because she needed an heir. She was 37. And mm. so that was, she didn't necessarily have a lot of pressure on um, her. She didn't need her nobles for foreign policy so much. She needed them for money. So anything that she wanted to do, they controlled the purse strings. Mm. So that was kind of what, but, you know, something else about her reign is that she, it's actually quite tragic. She thought she was pregnant on two occasions one time her doctors at both times, I think her doctors were sure, but one time it went all the way through nine months. Everybody told her you are pregnant. And she said she felt the baby quicken. And of course, at the time there's no ultrasounds, there's no pregnancy tests, right? So her doctors were convinced. They said, yes, you are going to be pregnant and you are pregnant. She went into confinement, you know, the public display. And, you know, you think about women not being able to, even now it's hard with maternity leave and stuff Mm. like back then she literally, women would go into confinement. So she would be six weeks before and six weeks after just gone only surrounded by women like no men were allowed in Wow, and uh, and so she went into confinement, and there was actually a rumor at one point that a son was born, and the bells pealed out, you know, through London, like oh, there's a son, there's a prince, blah 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 blah, and she just very quietly had to come back out because there there was no son, uh, uh, there was no child, and it was uh, a considered a phantom pregnancy is actually the word for when you want it so badly Whoa. that you actually your body makes these things happen. And there's just no baby. And that happened to her then a second time. And then she died probably of ovarian cancer, I think. Um, something like that. But uh, it Whoa. was... So there was that happening during this period as well, um, which was quite a tragic experience for her, I, I would think, um, considering that was also seen as a woman's number one job to have heirs. So she had this mixture on her of being both the monarch as well as the person who was supposed to be, produce the heirs. So, like, the kings didn't necessarily have to produce the heirs. They were just the monarch. Right. She right. had to be, which women nowadays who are working, I suppose, there's often that thing of that working women have to be both the breadwinner and take care of the home and stuff like that. And so she kind of had that very early on. She had to be both the monarch and go into confinement and have a child and stuff like that. One of the questions I have about understanding, because the idea of Bloody Mary was that she was like very hardcore anti-Protestant, mm-hmm. willing to kill people to, you know, to to change England, but you know, ruthless, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And you know, we've already talked about that she and Elizabeth killed a, a similar number of people, which doesn't mean she wasn't ruthless. It might have meant right. that Elizabeth also was, but um, so when we think about post her her two phantom pregnancies near her death, 
she knows that Elizabeth is set up to be her heir. Mm-hmm. So presumably she knows that when she when she dies, mm-hmm. the Catholic dream is going to sort of die with her. Yeah. Um, how did she react to that? How did she deal with Elizabeth? What did she do? Yeah, you know, she never actually tried to disinherit her. She she respected her father's will, and she knew that Elizabeth was going to be the the next queen. And she just asked Elizabeth to honor the faith. Was all she did, and I mean, I think she knew that it was gonna, that it was gonna end. Something else about that's interesting about the the burning or the killing all the Protestants is that at the time, the sentencing or the when somebody was convicted of heresy, um, they had to be sentenced by the state. It mm. moved from an ecclesiastical church court to the state court because the church couldn't put people to death officially. Mm. And so it moved over to this. So if you were convicted of heresy, you were automatically then put into the, into the state system and heresy was punishable by burning. They actually thought it was like a merciful punishment because you tasted the fires of hell while you still had time to repent. So if you think, talk about reconsidering, if you reconsider that, wow, they actually thought it was, you know, good because it was giving people a chance to repent before they actually tasted the real fires of hell, uh, which would be eternal. These fires right. of hell last for, you know, 45 minutes. Oh, man. <laughs> uh. and, and, and to a degree, you can say, yeah, I mean, I get it, kind of, but, like, my, my own opinion there is, like, okay, yeah, humanity can make progress, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, I feel like... Eric and I are, are, if we're using sort of any reconsidered principles here, it's yes. mainly external skepticism and detachment because while Eric and I both have a, you know, decent high-level understanding of how Tudor England began with Henry Seventh and then lasted until the Stuarts, we're not really, really attached to any one particular narrative because we only know so much about it. I haven't even watched the Tudors, to yeah. be honest. Well, well yeah, that's actually probably you know just as much as people. <laughs> <laughs> Did I just say that? Oh, burn. <laughs> no. But not as much as people who listen to your podcast. For, that you is know, true. Repeatedly. I've I, listened to a couple episodes, just no, not enough. I, I have seen The Tudors, and I'm now listening to Heather's other podcast, and it's awesome. I went at one point in my mind, like, oh, man, I wonder what parts of this show is real. It'd be cool if someone told me. And then, like, several years later, the podcast just appeared out of thin air. So thank See, you, See, ask and you shall receive. Thank you for that kind comment. I did not actually pay them to say that. Yeah, no, seriously, I just like like the podcast. Yeah, um, let's see. What okay, so go say. on the recon- detachment. So, what about internal attachment? Yeah, right. So, I I think because neither you nor I, Eric, have like a really really emotional attachment to any one perspective or interpretation of Mary or Elizabeth, or we want to go back in time and Boleyn, then mm-hmm. it's harder for us to. Well, we're not going to have emotional response to it, so it's harder for us to detach ourselves from those emotions or be skeptical of our own positions because. I mean, we should be, but we only have sort of a loose starting point anyways, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a, a better example for internal detachment is Anne Boleyn. Mm-hmm. Because the, from what little I know about Anne Boleyn is that um, she, I know that she's a sort of big symbol. Like, she, she's, the stakes are high with Anne Boleyn, right? Like, you either love her or hate her. Right. She's a big symbol of either being, like kind of a nasty, like, mm-hmm. stole Henry kind of woman, yeah. or a, a strong feminist character that yeah. was, like, standing standing up for, like, herself in a time where she was super oppressed by mm-hmm. the patriarchy, and 
So, like, people really care about Anne Boleyn. Yes. But I don't know much about Anne Boleyn, so... Could you tell me about Anne Boleyn? Well, um, her her father is a diplomat. Henry had had an affair with her sister as well before, and possibly her mother. It, the sources vary. Um, but and anyway, she was initially kind of put into this, and she caught Henry's eye, and he wanted her. But Anne had also seen what had happened to her sister when her sister Mary had been Henry's mistress, and she was just kind of cast aside afterwards and when Henry tired of her um which wasn't necessarily a bad thing you could make a good marriage then it was actually I think kind of uh, if if you got the king's mistress it was mm. kind of cool you know so yeah. the man might who married her might have been like oh you know I got the king's mistress yeah she's at least got some ears in court yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 but you know I think Anne didn't necessarily want to go down that route, but Anne also had her own axes to grind because Anne was meant to be engaged to to somebody else. I have to look it up. I forget his exact name. Um, but Woolsey had had thwarted her engagement um, to this other minor nobleman, Cardinal Woolsey, and so she had this whole axe to grind against Woolsey and against um, you know what had been done to her before. So she um, she had her own kind of things going on, but she was very educated. She was raised at the court of Margaret of Austria, which was interestingly where some of the writings of Christina of Pizan were found, who was an early feminist writer. Oh, cool. She wrote a book called about something about the city of ladies, about a, a city that was run only by ladies and what that mm-hmm. was like. And she was a very early feminist writer of the early 15th century, I think. Cool. Wow. Yeah. And uh, anyway, Anne was raised around all of this culture and she was a very cultured woman, very smart, um, just very charming. And, you know, I think beyond that, I, I don't I don't know, you know, this whole narrative that she stole Henry or that she didn't. She once she caught the king's eye, what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. And she could have gone and been his mistress and then been cast away or she could have played the role that she played. I'm not really sure what other options she would have had at that point. So am I would I be correct in saying that one narrative, one interpretation that exists about Anne Boleyn then is she stole Henry from Catherine, she ruined the monarchy, she destroyed Catholicism mm-hmm. and led to the rise of Anglican, um, Anglican Church. Mm-hmm. Um, and how dare she, it's all her fault. That might be right. one position, right? Yeah. Some people perhaps think that. If you were to approach that with internal skepticism, maybe if you're reading an article that presents some more depth or you're listening to the Renaissance English podcast that presents <laughs> some more depth mm-hmm. and you hear something that challenges that narrative, the first thing that might happen to you is go, eh, I don't know, that sounds like nonsense, right? Because mm-hmm. it, it would be a fact that if correct kind of conflicts with your interpretation of history. Right. So the first thing that I would do if I ran into that emotion would be to say, okay, is that a reasonable emotion that I'm having mm-hmm. right now? Or is this something that I should actually listen to more mm-hmm. because it's causing sort of this, you know, this stirring of, of you know, tension or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So that, that would be one example of like an t- internal detachment, like being willing to have emotion in one area of your mind and being yeah. willing to nonetheless listen to ideas that challenge your own position in another. Yeah. And so then how could we use that for modern day? So like... Anne, it's just interesting because both Anne and Mary, I, I, I'm kind of really interested. I'm, I have a soft spot for Mary and um, Anne as well because of the kind of early feminist ideas 
Mary was the first queen and she had to navigate this world while she was also having phantom pregnancies and mm. all of this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, Anne, you know, was her daughter was three when she was beheaded, which is oh. Hannah's age now. And I think about if they would take me and behead me and like, you know, wondering what would happen to my daughter. She saw she was actually largely responsible for Mary having been declared a bastard before so she kind of had to think well what's going to happen to elizabeth now that i'm being beheaded mm-hmm. and you know just thinking about um going off to the tower and and thinking like well, shit maybe this wasn't the right card to have played right. um and you know, i don't know like i guess there's i feel like both of these narratives around Anne, either she's great she, the you know it's the whole mare uh, the virgin or the whore idea mm, and i yeah. feel like there's got to like it's even nowadays, like with Hillary Clinton, you either love her or she's evil. And I just wonder how you can bring more kind of depth to there was, I'm sure Anne simultaneously was evil as well as good. I mean, like everybody has that within them. Right. So talk to me about that. I think the principle that I like to take for this is, you know, so, and one of the things that we like to do on our, our show that I'm, really impressed you did is you, you were able to recognize some of your internal bias that you have a soft spot mm-hmm. because like of the feminist implications of some of what they did. And, um, what that, what that could potentially mean is that like some of the nasty that they might have done, you may mm-hmm. have, you may have like missed that detail when you read about it mm-hmm. or it may have like escaped your mind. You know, they may have, they may, they may have done nasty stuff because mm-hmm. they were humans that lose some lives. Right. Um, and they may have done some, you know, and if you hate them, they may have also happened to do some wonderful stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I don't know, like Hitler was like allegedly very nice to puppies or something, right? Okay. Like he was like, oh. really nice to dogs. <laughs> I mean, what's the, that's the crazy example is that like, is that no one is bereft of some bad or good. Right. And... What I, when I think of trying to be internally detached, in particular about a person, is I try to not make them a symbol for something bigger. Like they're a person Mm. that lived a life that had their own motivations, their own flaws. But Mm. I think if you like make Anne Boleyn, for example, if you put, if you put the stakes too high about Mm. her narrative and her story, um, you can get into trouble because if you say, for example, Anne Boleyn is like a, a champion of feminism yeah. um, or, you know, downright evil and, and the destroyer of Catholicism or whatever your third mm-hmm. narrative might be. What happens is when you see evidence that her life, that something she did in her life, like conflicts with that narrative, mm-hmm. it's very, very hard to embrace that. Right. You start to reject it. You're like, no, yeah. Because because she somehow symbolized this thing that she doesn't actually. And I'm thinking about like putting our own filters on people. Like we're thinking about this. Like I, I showed you some of the YouTube comments that people put on. Yeah. Co- like you, <laughs> Eric was like, we can't, can't say this on this I show know. without making an explicit show. It's uh, terrible stuff. Yeah, and it was just funny because we were talking about what to talk about. We we're talking about what to talk about, and you were like, yeah, but people don't have such emotional responses to Tudor England. <laughs> Tudor and I was England. like, I mean, let me show cares, you what people right? write on YouTube. And it's like people are really, really into this, right? Like have some seriously emotional investments in this. And I just think like we're putting our filters now 500 years later, post-women's movement, post-women being able to have the, like we're like, we have this whole idea of what feminist like for me with that card with that narrative with Anne Boleyn and with Mary and and Elizabeth too um but having a soft spot for them because I'm a feminist or whatever and I but it's like my understanding of fem like trying to say Anne Boleyn was a feminist is like I don't know I don't know what a similar trying to say that 
I can't even think. Like, Amblin didn't know what a feminist, you know? Like, Amblin didn't know that word. Right. Like, the idea that even she would, like, even Christina Pizan, the City of Ladies, like, the whole premise, it was so revolutionary because the whole premise of it was that women could not do this. And uh, that was, like, utopia, like, doesn't exist, right. right? And so it's, like, these people didn't think in terms of women's rights. Right. And so for me to say Anne Boleyn was a feminist, like, she didn't know what that meant. Right. Like, she wouldn't know. So that's me putting my filter on her. And so talk to me about that. I think it's very difficult to be able to, like, recognize your own filters. But I think doing that, especially if you're in a position of talking to more than a couple of people at a time is attempting to be honest because you're saying, listen, everyone, I'm going to talk about something, but just so you know, this is where I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. Now, I think as it relates to Anne Boleyn, as it relates to, you mentioned Clinton and sort of Mm -hmm. today, Mm -hmm. the first thing that comes to my mind, if I'm thinking about these either famous figures in history or political figures is one we are almost certainly placing too much emphasis on a handful of people that are just better well-known, right? Because mm-hmm. I know more about Henry VIII than I do about Moore or Woolsey just because there's probably more written about him. Mm-hmm. Um, and same with today, right? You're going to read more stories in the BBC and Politico and AP about Hillary Clinton than my state senator, right, mm-hmm. in California. So the first thing that I always say to myself is no matter what I think I know about this, it's almost certainly more complicated. Mm -hmm. Because Anne Boleyn was not acting in a vacuum. She -hmm. was acting in a really complex, dangerous political system with Mm -hmm. different pressures, different actors, with individual interests and motivations. Mm -hmm. And it's just difficult, therefore, to attribute everything to one person because it's almost certainly more complex than Mm -hmm. that. Interesting. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> I just see where we're kind of going. Yeah, I was one of the things swirling around in my head is uh, you know some of what I and I, I don't I don't know fully how I feel about it um, all the time, but one of the narratives I've I've heard is that you know a lot of the criticism that Hillary Clinton gets, a man would not get, mm-hmm. and. Some of the stuff I kind of look at and I go, like, that's possibly true. And some of the stuff I go, like, well, maybe not so much. Because you could make that defense of no matter, of any criticism of Hillary Clinton. Like, someone mm-hmm. could plausibly say of any criticism of her, mm-hmm. well, I mean, a man I mean, wouldn't get that. So mm-hmm. it's, it's sexism. And then there's also the, the narrative that there's a lot of people that wanted to vote for Hillary Clinton because she's a woman. Mm-hmm. And I've seen some of that as well. Like mm-hmm. People are like, time for our first woman president. And you're right. kind of like, okay, fine. Um, you know, and so... You know, Anne Boleyn, there might be some, you know, if we look back at Anne Boleyn, there might be some similar stuff where, like, maybe maybe if you dug up something, it's like, look, Anne Boleyn schemed. She was a schemer. Mm-hmm. It's like, dude, this is a freaking Tudor England. Everyone schemed, mate. <laughs> like, everyone was scheming. This is yeah. the Tudor court. It yeah. was nothing but scheming. Yes, it was scheming 100% of the time, all the time. Uh-huh. And is there a reason that you're upset that Anne Boleyn schemed when you're not right. upset that all these other people are running yeah. around scheming politically? Yeah. Um, and at the same time, are there some... Places that Anne Boleyn would get a pass if, you know, versus someone else because she's a woman by a different yeah. kind of person. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, obviously the gender is still a, you know, even though we're past the women's movement, gender is still a, it's a pretty hot thing. And mm-hmm. I think one of the internal skepticisms that we can have, and maybe that's the only one we didn't hit, I'm not sure, that we can have is, you know, we have implicit narratives that we do apply 
to men and women differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the scheming thing. Like, mm-hmm. oh, this yeah. man is, is, you know, a clever manipulator versus yeah. this schemey, schemey woman. Stuff yeah. like that. Um, There's a woman... Bess of Hardwick, who was this woman who rose from being a yeoman gentry family through marriages and being clever and fighting for her dower rights and all this. She became the second wealthiest woman in England just after Elizabeth. And she also was a dynasty builder Mm because she married her children Mm -hmm. off to advantageous marriages. And she wound up, uh, her granddaughter had a claim to the throne, which had she been a man, she probably would have been king over James I of Mm -hmm. Scotland. Um, Her daughter, Arbella, who was um, just had just as viable of a claim to the throne. And that was through Best of Hardwick's marrying her children off to these different people. Anyway, um, it's funny because people talk about Bess of Hardwick and say, oh, she was a dynasty builder. Like, it's a bad thing. Okay. Whereas, like, Henry VII was a dynasty builder, yeah. right? But people with even contemporary would say, you know, this woman is just scheming for her children. Mm. That's, all, that's all the men did, too. Right. Like, that's what you did. Yeah. You schemed for your children. Like, that was the whole point. Yeah. And it's just interesting when you talked about that. Like, yeah. And I'm sure we could find tons of examples. And it, yeah. it would seem the case, I think, I think... When we think about Hillary Clinton, we can't deny that all of us, I think, when we look at her, think of her differently and kind of apply different filters to her, whether rosy or, or black mm-hmm. or or some mix of it, um, mm-hmm. in a different way than we would. We're at Barack Obama running mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we need to... Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, we could go on for a long time. So if you want to hear more of these kinds of discussions... You need to check out these guys' podcast, Reconsider. So do you guys want to plug it again? Reconsidermedia.com slash podcast. Come check out Reconsider, where we pick one interesting topic twice a month. We'll talk about it. We'll help you with the research, but we won't do the thinking for you. Yep. You can also find us on your favorite podcatcher. You can find us on social media at ReconsiderPod, both Facebook and Twitter. Um we tend to get even sillier than we did with Heather. Um, we have a lot of fun. Our audience has a lot of fun. We'd love for you guys to get involved. Ask us some questions. Uh, let us know what you'd love us to talk about on uh, our next show or probably some shows down the line. Um, also, check out Watching the Tutors with Heather. Uh, but we hope to see you over there. We hope to hear from you as well. Yeah. Thanks for having us on your show. Thanks for... Thanks for coming on my show. Thanks for coming to Spain. Yeah, we're in Ronda right now with Heather, and it's a ton of fun. (laughs) Bye. 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 It's been amazing. Adios. All right, see you, everyone. Bye-bye. Blow, northern wind, a sandal may be sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hoor to board in Bauerbrich, that's all is on sea.